Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. Well, if you are of a certain age, you already know what that is. It's the theme music to the Alfred Hitchcock uh, television show. I I am living proof that in the 60s, if you were a child, if you were a boy in the 60s or a girl in the 60s, you would know who Alfred Hitchcock was without actually having ever seen anything he directed. (laughs) Because he was sort of like that, you know, and the thing began with this music and a picture of him in silhouette and then he's talking to the camera and I knew exactly who Alfred Hitchcock was except I didn't know anything about Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, He was an unusual director I think in in that way and in lots of other ways. So we're going to have a conversation in particular about his relationship to actors and acting today. Um, Before we do that I have to tell you one thing just in case it affects the show. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it won't, but so uh, let's see, four or five hours ago, I had the second Pfizer uh, dose of the uh, COVID vaccine, which, uh, first of all, and Pfizer has not made a big deal uh, of this, but some of us uh, briefly after the va- second dose acquire the uh, power of flight for about 48 hours, I actually flew up into a pine tree in my yard right before the show, but I might have other side effects as well. <laughs> So if I collapse during the show, one of the guests will take over and, and host uh, or something. I'm, I'm drinking lots of water because it's the only thing I know to do. And, and and I think it's possible, actually, that when the book of Genesis is finally translated accurately, it's going to turn out that God said to Adam and Eve, look, just hydrate, okay? Just everybody just, just took a lot of water and you'll be fine. And then they didn't do it. And, you know, there's no apple or snake or anything like that. All right. Time to talk about Alfred Hitchcock. Enough about me and my ability to fly. Uh, joining us today is Dan Callahan, who writes about film. His newest book is The Camera Lies, acting for Hitchcock. Also joining us, as he has many times before, Tom Breen, Managing editor of the New Haven Independent, uh, and he hosted Deep Focus on WNHH Radio. It's in his contract writer. I have to say it that way. He can, he insists on it. So um, first of all, uh, and we should also say that we tried to get a woman guest who would be appropriate for this. Uh, Jonathan McPants, the producer, tried very hard. I think it's you know would have been good in this situation simply because there are so many issues about Hitchcock and women, but you'll just have to trust us and or resent us or do whatever. So first of all, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for, Thanks for having us. Hi, Tom. Hi, Dan. So, um, you know, uh, maybe just to begin with uh, an overview, Dan, uh, you know, you say in the book that Hitchcock's creativity is based on fear and wanting us to be afraid with him. You know, as I think about Hitchcock, to me, I don't think there's a another director I can think on think of who is so obsessed or auteur who is so obsessed with the issue of trust. Uh, 
So many of these movies are about, can I trust this other person? Is this person telling me the truth about him or herself? Was I wrong to distrust this person? Maybe I should have been distrusting that other person there, whereas this person who didn't seem trustworthy actually is. I mean, it, it, that does seem to flow. I don't know how well he ever articulated that, but it seems like this gigantic issue for him. Well, I, it's a very large issue. And I think what it has to do with is that what I say in the book is that fear, the thing, the thing that he's against his entire life and all his movies are against are complacency. He knows that evil can happen because we get too relaxed. We get too comfortable. And as you say, we get too trusting maybe. And we don't see that evil might be among us and, and terrible things happen because we are not alert. And he wants us to be alert. That that's part of what suspense is, and that's part of what uh, being afraid is for him is to be very alert and to not be complacent. That's a, runs all through his films. So, you know, Tom, as a uh, as a person considerably younger than me, and as somebody who has devoted quite a bit of his time and life to film, I'm sort of wondering. I mean, you must have had to kind of almost inhale a lot of Hitchcock all at once. I mean, we talk about binge watching, but, you know, in order to be serious about this, you, you probably had to ingest an awful lot of Hitchcock. I'm, I'm just sort of wondering from the perspective of somebody who's much more a person of this century as opposed to the last one, how how do you process Hitchcock? Who Who is he to you? Yeah, well, yeah, I would say that's, that's very much true. My, my first job ever uh, in high school was at a, a movie store kind of right as all the VHS uh, were being dropped and DVDs were coming in. And I certainly remember a lot of people renting Psycho and North by Northwest. So even before I kind of fell down the film criticism rabbit hole, I'm certainly very aware of Alfred Hitchcock as a kind of titan of this, this art form. Um, and is there any better director to, you know, inhale their work, especially that, uh, the, that stuff in, in the 1950s from Rear Window to Vertigo, North by Northwest, uh, Psycho and the Birds in, in the early 60s. I mean, this is all, you know, he is um, a kind of master of straddling that entertainment and art divide. Each work is such a joy and such a thrill to watch. And yet he also, I think, as Dan was saying, as you were saying, because of his incredible sensitivity to, to interests of, of fear and of trust, of a really kind of uncertain sense of individual identity, these very modern uh, obsessions that he had, um, it is very easy just to become, you know, completely wrapped uh, uh, up in his work, uh, the level of kind of audience identification with even the most manic and maniacal of characters is so easy in Hitchcock films, um, not because they're plausible in a realistic sense, but because he knows and his actors and actresses know how to get the audience believing every single bit of it, how to fall into that world. And so as a, as a younger person, slightly younger person, uh, inhaling all of this stuff at once, um, it is, you know, it's meant, it almost seems like it's, it's meant to be watched that way all at once, uh, because he is a, you know, he's an auteur. I should say, you know, one of my, you know, what really got me into movies in the first place was I was working in a movie store was film criticism. And one, one of the kind of epochal books for me was Francois Truffaut's interviews with Hitchcock uh, in the early 1960s, published a little bit later. And to have someone, you know, a film geek of that era like Truffaut, so, you know, immersed in every single image, every single movie that this guy made, um, it kind of opened my eyes to how to approach a filmmaker's work, not just one by one, but as a whole. And Hitchcock's a great person to do that with. 
You know, Dan, well, one reason that I, I uh, called Tom a person of this century is that Hitchcock is so emphatically giving us this kind of cook's tour of the 20th century. I mean, you know, and, and all of his issues about fear and distrust uh, are easily superimposed on the moment. Are you a German spy? Are you a saboteur? Uh, are you a communist spy? Are you, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, as, I, I think that yeah, the thing ahead. is that's, that's part, is that he knows that evil can be seductive. He knows that evil can be attractive. He knows that a Nazi or a, or a, a spy might be very charming very appealing and he also knows that the good person the good people they might not have too much charm they might not be too appealing and so these are surface things that can screw us up and he's very attuned to that that's part of his whole thing of what we look like what we seem like and what we actually are and that's what's so disturbing about the films and so profound about them so, Dan, one of the things that I think you stress in the book is for those reasons, he was interested and attracted to actors who could kind of live in an in-between space, who could, in fact, be kind of dry erase boards of uncertainty and ambivalence, right? The the really kind of the Betty Davis type uh, performer maybe isn't the right performer for him because that performer is making that actor is making such a strong signature. Yes, uh, he, as I say in the book, I think the Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman are the ultimate Hitchcock actors because they uh, are always straddling a line between this and that. You know, they're on the fence. They, they aren't definite about anything. It's always in flux. There's all, and that's, there's an edginess about them. Whereas if you are a Betty Davis, if you are a Brando, if you are a Meryl Streep, it's all going to be very clear and very definite. And he can't use actors like that. He can use actors who, ideally, they look like one thing, but actually there's something else underneath. Like Robert Walker in Strangers on a Train. He had played these kind of aw shucks, you know, soldier ingenue types in the 1940s. And then in Strangers on a Train, he still seems like that, charming, aw shucks, but he's actually a cold-blooded killer. And he's very interested in that, uh, that switch all right, so we'll get we're going to get back to Robert Walker in just a second. But you spoke of Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, which means we have to, by law, play a clip from Notorious. Here we go. Anything else? Nothing important. Just a minor item, but you may want it for the record. What is it? You can add Sebastian's name to my list of playmates. Pretty fast work. That's what you wanted, wasn't it? Skip it. Alex says they've been holding him back all season. I can't but help recalling some of your remarks. About being a new woman. Daisies and buttercups, wasn't it? Oh, you idiots. What are you sore about? You knew very well what I was doing. Did I? You could have stopped me with one word. No, you wouldn't. You threw me at him. I threw you at nobody. Didn't you tell me to go ahead? A man doesn't tell a woman what to do. She tells herself. You almost had me believing in that little hokey-pokey miracle of yours. That a woman like you could ever change her spots. Oh, you rotten. That's why I didn't try to stop you. The answer had to come from you. I see. Some kind of love test. That's right. Well, you never believed in me anyway, so what's the difference? Lucky for both of us, I didn't. It wouldn't have been pretty if I believed in you. If I'd figured she'd never be able to go through with it, she'd been made over by love. It, it's interesting because a few years later, he's having the same conversation with Eva Marie Saint, more or less. Uh, but I, I want to talk a little bit about sex and sexuality at this point. Um, you know, Tom, in a way, Hitchcock is introducing people or is showing people a world 
uh, of sort of uh, of available sex in a way that particularly in certain periods might not have been quite as crystal clear as it has been maybe more lately. I'm, th I'm thinking, you know, even, I mean, that clip is an example, but even the 39 Steps, which came out in 1935, it begins pretty much with this woman saying to this Canadian guy after this weird incident in a nightclub, can I go back to your place? I mean, she, they, they, there's a, a, the first words she utters to him and he kind of in this very Canadian way goes, oh, OK, you know, take your chances or whatever. So it's weird because you see this idea of maybe reality being saturated by sexual opportunity. But I think, Tom, as you observed, you also feel this tremendous amount of repression. Yeah, sex, sex uh, I think, looms large uh, in, in Hitchcock's work, to say the least, and to maybe answer this question and also pick up on what you and Dan were just talking about. I mean, I, I really think that the insight that Dan has in his book about Hitchcock's penchant for, you know, quote unquote, negative acting or for actors who could be on screen and do nothing as opposed to do a lot uh, is, is a really fascinating one. I mean, these are big stars of the art, right? Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Ingrid Bergman, Kim Novak. I mean, these are, these are really familiar faces. And I think the way that Alfred Hitchcock um, knew how to, you know, make those faces fill the entirety of the screen, make their hands fill the entirety of the screen, really kind of present this individual in their kind of, ex you know, their most expressive kind of entirety to the audience, but then also have that actor do as little as possible to let the audience kind of fill in the blanks. Again, is, is so um, such a masterful technique for encouraging audience identification. And what more, you know, think what would an audience want to identify with than these incredibly, you know, attractive people engaged in all of these like really sexually loaded, uh, you know, conversations and occasionally kind of physical interactions. Um, I think that, you know, it, Maybe this could be a good time to talk about Vertigo a little bit. You know, one of the probably most celebrated work. You know, it's twenty the twenty twelve in well, actually, the actually, sight and sound pulse of it. Actually, Jonathan, oh, Jonathan McPants doesn't want us to talk about Vertigo. Yeah. Oh, he not has, Vertigo. Yeah. Okay. He has a plan. Well, he has a plan. <laughs> but but I but I do think that you know, not just in the superficial similarities of all of the young, busty, blonde women that Hitchcock cast in his movies, which I think speaks volumes to you know, what we should talk about later about maybe the, the sexism that also looms large in over this work. I think that Hitchcock really felt like, you know, in at a time when Freudian, you know, Freudian theories um, of, you know, the edible complex and stuff like that were just a really big deal in trying to understand everything about society, everything about art. I think uh, Hitchcock zeroed in on the fraught sexual and sexually repressed relationships we had with with lovers with friends with family members as maybe the most important motivating influence for every part of of life and combine that with the kind of dreamlike logic that so many of hitchcock's movies operate by um it is a really you know it's at times it, it feels kind of scandalizing and violating obviously psycho being a good example of feeling violated by what's going on on screen but also He's identified this as a really important part of human existence that he wants to explore again and again and again and again. So, you know, so I think it was interesting, some of the things that, that Tom just mentioned, Dan, and well, I'll zero in on one of them here, which is if you think about Rear Window, there is a quintessentially busty blonde who the Jimmy Stewart character refers to as Miss Torso over there. Uh, but 
In fact, the the uh, apex of desirability is Grace Kelly, who's a very, very different creature. And this is, I think, something that you explore a lot in your book is, you know, what who are women to Hitchcock and what does what does he crave in them? What does he want us to crave in them? It's something more, really, I think, than just somebody who's blonde of, and stacked. Different types of women. There's the Grace Kelly. There's the, the, the blonde. But then there's also the Barbara Bel Geddes the, in, in Vertigo. There's who and his own daughter, Patricia Hitchcock, who's in several of his movies, including Psycho and Strangers on a Train. There's the woman who is very blunt and funny and you know, is not at all the goddess. There's the goddess. And then there's and so what he had in life with his wife and with his daughter, it was this very blunt sort of not, you know, this not fantasy, not uh, sexuality, not just every no mystery at all, you know. And so he's always weighing these two things in his films between the goddess who he longs for and then the reality of life, which is, and, and he puts them both into his films and he's, he's always weighing the two of them. I mean, it's a very complicated subject. It is a very complicated subject. I, I guess it's, maybe this is a good point to mention that according to Hitchcock and Dan, I don't know what you make of this statement, but he said either jokingly or seriously that he'd only had sexual intercourse once uh, for the purpose of creating progeny. Is this, does that strike you as a truth or kind of a, 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 a quasi truth and something that has the quality of being pretty, true? I think it's really? probably pretty close to the truth. Mm -hmm. If it isn't the absolute, I think it's probably pretty close to the truth. And so someone who isn't having sex at all of course, they're obsessed with sex as a subject, you know, and imagine the torment of that, too. <laughs> you know, so so if that is something that if you want to understand where the films come from, where the art comes from, that is the basis of it. But we wouldn't be still be interested in Hitchcock if he wasn't someone who gets way beyond that in his films. I think what I was speaking about with Tom earlier was that he's curious about every person in his films. He's curious about everyone and he identifies with all of them, even the small part players. And his films are so great because you can wonder about the people who play bit parts practically, who have four or five lines. They are whole human beings, three-dimensional human beings, mysterious, and you want to know more about them. And I mean, that's part of the richness of his films and why it's so much fun to watch his films more than once. You know, you can you can watch them over and over again and you always are going to see something new. You always are going to perceive something else in them because they're jam-packed with, you know, all these rich characters. Right. If I may, if I may interject yeah. very quickly on on that before we leave the the kind of sex and sexual repression and also all the side characters, I think Rear Window is a yes. perfect example of what you and Dan were just talking about. And one, the main character played by you know uh, by Jimmy Stewart, uh, immobilized and effectively impotent, it seems to be greatly motivated by like his inability to do anything, including having sex, and that seems to be driving this voyeuristic impulse to look at you know what everyone across the way is doing in their own private apartments. But as Dan was saying, I mean, talk about a movie with great characters that just kind of appear and then they're gone. Miss Lonely Hearts. I, I don't remember the name of the actress, but Dan has a few wonderful facts about Judith Evelyn. The, oh my goodness. Oh. She's just lovely. But I mean, the, the investment that Hitchcock and the audience have in her story, a woman who I'm not even sure if her character has a name beyond Miss Lonely Hearts in her, her desperation, her, of course, her, her loneliness, uh, the, you know, camaraderie between her and Jimmy Stewart's character, just by virtue of him 
watching her. I mean, the empathy that develops. It's it's really an incredible relationship without anyone meeting once in the movie. It's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah, what's great about it is if you remember in Rear Window when uh, Jimmy Stewart is looking at Miss Lonely Hearts when she's doing that really pitiful dinner and pretending like she's with someone and he toasts her. It's mm-hmm. wonderful because he feels like he identifies with her. Like he's, he knows like the, the Miss Lonely Hearts in him. He's ended it and he's toasting it. And that's so beautiful. That's why I think Verwindo is my favorite Hitchcock movie because it's the most hopeful of them. Whereas you know, a few of the others are pretty despairing. Verwindo isn't. Yeah. There was a fascinating staging of Rear Window by the Hartford Stage Company a, a few years ago. And it kind of, with the everything that was done with the set, Tom, calls to mind one of your thoughts about Hitchcock, um, Tom, and that is that he's a very interpretable director. He invites, I mean, you can look at Rear Window five or six d- different ways. Um, and you could do that. I mean, sometimes it, what you're seeing is very obvious. Train goes into a tunnel. We get it. Uh, but but there are, I think you suggest a, a lot of invitations to interpret. And of course, I mean, that is another key part of my love for Hitchcock. I think a lot of people's love for Hitchcock. I mean, has there, you know, I can't think of a director who puts actual kind of psychiatrists in his movies as frequently as Hitchcock does, of course, in Psycho and in Vertigo. And in there's a wonderful scene, you know, towards the end of The Birds, where the whole family is kind of trapped in their cottage as it's being bombarded by birds attacking them. And all they, all the family, all they really do is just shout, why is this happening at one another? This, this need to try to understand what is happening without any actual single answer being offered. We can talk about how that works in Psycho a little bit too. But I I think that Hitchcock is very aware that you want to keep things simple. You want to make sure that the audience understand what's going on, that they are are kind of cued into the the crop duster flying in the background that something something serious weighty is about to happen. But also you can't provide every single answer. These aren't movies just about things. These these movies are things these are, you know, discrete works of art that offer, you know, let the audience understand, you know, try to come up with their own understanding as to what on earth is going on in here. Why on earth is Scotty Ferguson, you know, undressing and dressing and undressing and dressing this, this, you know, apparent complete stranger. What, what is it that's motivating them? I think the beauty of Hitchcock movies is that he doesn't want the audience to think that the answer is any one thing, or at least I, I don't think he does. Um, and that interpretability is just a, a joy. All right, we're going to have to take a little break here. Uh, we'll go out with some music from Rear Window. I have to, the, you know, this is uh, for 10 years been my favorite piece of movie trivia that the piano playing guy in Rear Window is the Alvin and the Chipmunks guy. So I will take this opportunity to say that. Uh, but anyway, here's some music from Rear Window. We'll be back with more Hitchcock. You'd like to get rid of your wife. It's a morbid thought. No, 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 no. Just suppose. Let's say that you had a very good reason. No, let's, let's, no, no, let's, let's say. Now, you'd be afraid to kill her. You know why? You'd get caught. And what would trip you up? The motive 
Ah, now here's my idea. I'm afraid I haven't got time to listen, Bruce. Listen, it's so simple, too. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Swap murders? <laughs> each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. Like, you do my murder, I do yours. We're coming into my station. For example, your wife, my father, Chris Cross. All right, so you're hearing of Farley Granger and Robert Walker in Strangers from a Train. So many trains, so many trains. Strangers on a train. Um, so many trains uh, in Hitchcock. So, um, Dan, you uh, write at length about the performance of Robert Walker, which was alluded to in the uh, preceding segment, too, uh, that it might be the best performance in, in all of Hitchcock. Say more about that. Well, I think Robert Walker was in a very bad place when he was shooting Strangers on a yes. Train. He'd broken up with his wife, Jennifer Jones. He had been in, in he'd been institutionalized, really. At the Menninger so, Clinic. Yes. And so he came out and he had never played a part like this before. And Hitchcock was very aware that he was dealing with a very volatile situation. And he even said to Farley Granger, you know, something might happen on our film. We don't know. He was interested to see if he put this in front of the camera, what would happen. And so to me, I mean, we heard just a little, you've heard his voice and everything. There's something about Robert Walker and Strangers on a Train where it's kind of this uncapped essence of this disturbance and danger and this ambiguity. And it's something that you can't even put your finger on what it is because it's so pure, you know? Um, and so really, I think that that's why I say that Robert Walker and Strangers on a Train is maybe the ultimate in what Hitchcock wanted from an actor because it was so non-definite and it was so unsettling. We should say Tom was talking about psychiatrists uh, in uh, Hitchcock movies. Robert Walker was sort of, at least according to one theory, kind of accidentally killed by his psychiatrist. He um, was having some kind of episode and his psychiatrist was summoned and gave him some kind of injection that interacted with whatever else he had in his system. At least that. so goes one theory of Robert Walker's death, which was not too long after Strangers on a Train, too. But, you know, Tom, this goes back. What Dan is saying now uh, goes back to what you were saying before. I just have to quickly recall that I went to see the movie Speed with my friend Lou Wise. And when we walked out, Lou said, you know what I liked about the movie Speed? He said, I always knew what was happening. I was never in any doubt. And Tom, as you and Dan have both alluded to, that's the antithesis of Hitchcock. The entire time in most movies, you don't know what's happening. You don't know who to trust. You don't know whether which story is true. And it's kind of amazing that people would, will put up with that. I, I think human beings normally crave a certain amount of certainty. They like to know what's going on. I don't know, Tom, do you have a theory about like how Hitchcock can get away with this? Yeah, I think that's a, a really fascinating and important insight. And I think that, as we've been saying throughout, Hitchcock kind of has it both ways. You know, he really, um, I think, is evidenced by his his conversations with Francois Truffaut and everything we've said today. You know, he he's not a big fan of the plausibilists, people who would say, well, that wouldn't really happen that way. There's no way a stranger, you know, who just kind of bumps uh, shoes with someone on a train uh, would would wind up killing their, you know, their, their wife at a carnival fairground or something. Um, but I think that what Hitchcock's narratives, um, you know, the the lack of kind of certainty and surety they offer the audience, I think formally he is 
so adept at presenting as clear an image as possible. Again, I think the you know quintessential example is the crop duster sequence that I alluded to earlier in North by Northwest. You know, there's no this is the height of gratuity. There's no need for this scene to exist in the movie at all. I mean, you know, Cary, Cary Grant playing this uh, this you know ad man on the run uh, in this kind of spy adventure. You know, for some reason, he's kind of sent out to the middle of nowhere. This really uh, you know, middle of farmland and in this beautiful and almost entirely silent sequence, um, we see at first that there is a plane kind of zoom around in the background. We don't know that this is going to become the most pivotal part of the, you know, the climax of this scene, but the way that Hitchcock introduces it visually, orally, I mean, the way that we hear what's going on, uh, the way that everyone kind of stops talking, there's, you know, this is what makes film so different than you know, literature or a type of art that's entirely reliant upon what people say and, you know, the, the words that one is reading. Um, Hitchcock knows how to use all of the different elements that make film this kind of composite form of art to make sure that I think in his best movies, the audience does know what's going on, even if narratively, it doesn't really matter. I mean, he, this is the MacGuffin guy, right? Like you don't have to really know uh, what the spy secrets are, but you have to know that they're important to the characters and you have to know that uh, something's building to a perhaps apocalyptic height. Okay, so Dan, there's a, a lot to uh, pull apart in what Tom says, uh, but, but I should say, by the way, we're talking to Tom Breen, managing editor of New Haven Independent, uh, hosted a, a deep focus on WNHH Radio, and Dan Callahan, who writes about film. His newest book is The Camera Lies, acting for Hitchcock. So, you know, there's kind of an interesting dynamic tension or paradox uh, in, in some of the things in, in the book, Dan, particularly the idea that on the one hand, you have Hitchcock as this... I don't know. There, he's sort of he's pretty godlike as a director. It's kind of like you know, look, you don't have to do too much. My camera will find you, frame you, get you to do a good performance. But on the other hand, he likes to work with iconic stars. You say that one reason he likes to work with iconic stars is he believes that people care more about what happens to Cary Grant out there in that field with that uh, crop duster. They're going to be much more worried about Cary Grant than they would be about somebody they've never seen before in their lives. But it just, yeah. it just is interesting how many iconic actors, you know, just who just really represents the creme de la creme decade after decade, he wants to have in his movies, even though he clearly also thinks that he should be in charge of pretty much everything. So I, I don't know. Can you tease out that paradox a little bit? Well, yeah. You know, I think the important thing about him and actors, you know, he was born in England and in his 1930s movies in England, he was working with very distinguished theater actors like John Gielgud, Peggy Ashcroft, Michael Redgrave. And the thing that he didn't like about them was that they didn't take his little thrillers seriously. They, they, you know, they were doing Chekhov and Shakespeare in the evening and they didn't care about this little thriller that they were doing. And, and he could feel that and he didn't like that. And that's why he said his famous line, you know, actors are cattle, you know, they, and because he was uh, offended that they didn't take what he was doing seriously. But when he went to America and as the years went on, you know, when he did Psycho, Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins were both very serious about their parts. And he was very happy about that. And so he was very happy to let Anthony Perkins add lines and add bits of business. And when Janet Lee is doing the scene in the car where she's driving and hearing thoughts in her head, he sat by the camera and read them to her because he wanted to you know, give her the mood that she needed. 
And so I think this thing of him not wanting to work with actors, it's, it's that he didn't want to work with actors who didn't take what he was doing seriously. If they took it seriously, he was happy and touched to work with them. Right. Although paradoxically, he uh, another paradox, he told the woman who played Miss Torso to go to Europe and uh, do Chekhov. And then if, when she came back, he would make her a star. She didn't do any of that stuff. But he, he obviously had some kind of belief, you know, that that the, the, tra the trained actors, he had some kind of faith in that process. But as you're saying, he just didn't want Gilgood coming from his Shakespeare productions and looking down his nose uh, at whatever movie uh, Hitchcock was shooting at the time. I want to talk a little bit about Vertigo. Some people say Vertigo. I mean, it just sometimes clocks in at number one. Uh, on the list of the greatest movies ever made, which is a pointless exercise anyway, but there you have it. Um, maybe we should begin by uh, playing uh, this scene between that, that takes place between, oh, I'm actually on the wrong page here. Uh, the scene that takes place between Jimmy Stewart uh, and Barbara Belgettis. Kat, do you, do you see where that is? Okay, go ahead. I wake up at night seeing that man fall from the roof and I try to reach out to it and I, I, it's just- It wasn't your fault. I know, that's what everybody tells me. Johnny, the doctor's explained to you. I know, I know. I have acrophobia, which gives me vertigo, and I get dizzy. Boy, what a moment to find out I had it. Well, you've got it, and there's no losing it, and there's no one to blame, so I quit. You mean to sit behind a desk, chairborne? Where you belong. What about my acrophobia? What about... Now, suppose, suppose I'm sitting in this chair behind the desk. Here's the desk. And a pencil falls from the desk down to the floor. And I reach down to pick up the pencil. Bingo, my acrophobia is back. Oh, Johnny-o. So, you know, uh, one thing that you said before, Dan, is that Hitchcock's interested in all of the lives of all of his characters. Uh, and, and he's very interested in Midge here and struggled a little bit with Barbara Belgettis uh, uh, about how, how to play these scenes. Tell us uh, what he wound up saying to her. Well, Barbara Belgettis was studying at the Actors Studio, and you know she wanted motivation. She wanted, like we were talking before about how Hitchcock doesn't want to tell you everything. Method actors of the fifties, he had trouble with, like Barbara Belgettis, because they wanted everything explained to them. And so what he said to her was, "Now, Barbara, don't act." He didn't want her to act. If you remember that scene at the beginning when Scotty is talking to Midge about how they once were engaged, all she does is she looks down. And she looks up and he doesn't want Barbara Belgettis to be signaling to us, oh, I wish we'd gotten married or, oh, I'm glad we didn't get married. No, he wants a completely blank slate so that we can project what we think might have occurred between them. And that worked very well because there have been whole books written about Vertigo. There have been whole books written about the look on her face practically, you know, so that's the Hitchcock method. Right. It's sort of it was against the yeah. what she wanted and what Montgomery Clift and a lot of the method actors of that time wanted. Right. Uh, it's sort of like just do a couple of little things and I'll come find you. I'll come find you with my camera. I'll frame you. I'll, I'll make you who you really need to be. Um, he also apparently had some problems with Martin, Martin Landau in North by Northwest for, for similar reasons, that whole method thing. Although, Tom, another paradox here, which is. You know, you could argue that Kim Novak's performance in Vertigo is one of the most elaborate pieces of kind of attention getting acting. It's hard to walk away from Vertigo and say, wow, those transformations, that was really amazing. I mean, in a way, that's a real actor's movie. And uh, a few things. First, let me say that I love Barbara Bill Geddes in Vertigo as well. And what probably my favorite 
you know, one of my favorite moments of Vertigo and one of the more emotionally affecting is when, you know, one of the few moments where Belgedis does get to emote a bit more evocatively after she kind of uh, makes a mistake, shows this portrait that she thought, thought would be amusing to Scotty Ferguson and he walks out and he's really hurt. And then, you know, there's just a few seconds where she she groans, she kind of pulls her hair and there's just a small burst of, you know, just complete frustration with herself that I just find devastating considering how much she's tried not to, to act beforehand. I think Kim Novak is probably my, my favorite, you know, this performance as Judy Barton, as Madeline Elster is probably my favorite performance in any Hitchcock movie. And Dan can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Hitchcock also struggled quite a bit working with Kim Novak, who I think he said, asked too many questions on set or something like yeah, that. And he said, a, he said a really fascinating thing to her, which she's repeated. She, he was, she was doing too much, he thought, in, in, the, in the scenes. And he said to her, you know, what you're doing is, it's like your face is a blank sheet of paper and you're scribbling all over the paper so we can't read it. I want you to write one clear sentence on the sheet of paper and then it, it will work. And then it will, because she, she, she wanted too much you know, explained to her like Barbara Bell Gettys. And so, and so she did that. She, she simplified. And, you know, it's the thing that's fascinating is that even though we've, if we've seen the movie a lot of times in the first half, when Judy Barton is pretending to be Madeline, pretending to be the blonde, if you try to look for, Judy Barton playing the part of Madeline in that first half of the movie, you almost can never catch her. You almost never catch maybe one time, one little look here and there, you can maybe see that this is a person playing a role. But what's fascinating from an acting perspective and from a human perspective is that in a way, Judy Barton finds the Madeline part of herself and maybe she likes that part of herself better than her actual self. And certainly Kim Novak could understand that. See, actors act a lot of the time because they want to play someone you know, better than themselves, more articulate, more appealing, you know, and it's, that's what's sad about acting, but that's also what's hopeful about it. And I, I think that, you know, just very briefly on why I so love this performance. And I think it's, you know, it's a real, just perfect, uh, you know, synchronicity or, or of character and of actress and performance and of, of director. I mean, the way that we see um, Kim Novak uh, merge the characters of Judy Barton and Madeline, especially in the, the latter half, shows so much about Hitchcock's obsession with people who dissemble, people who try to present, you know, one thing to one person and another to another. And, but also ultimately the futility of it all. all, all of these, all of these different urges, this kind of animal quality that this, this feral quality that Kim Novak brings to Judy Barton and also the ethereal quality she brings to Madeline Elster, they exist within the same person. And I think the genius of Hitchcock is that he's able to bring that out in her, uh, in the, you know, the genius of Novak she can bring it to. All right. We're going to take a quick break here. We're talking about uh, Alfred Hitchcock and his actors, and we'll do more of that on the other side of this. your time so empty? No. Well, I, I run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and, and do little uh, errands for my mother, the one she allows I might be capable of doing. And do you go out with friends? 
Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. You've never had an empty moment in your entire life, have you? Only my share. Where are you going? I didn't mean to pry. I'm looking for a private island. What are you running away from? Why do you ask that? No. People never run away from anything. All right, just hold hold your thoughts uh, about that clip, both the guests and audience. And let me say that our guests today are Tom Breen, managing editor of the New Haven Independent, uh, and a wonderful writer about film, and Dan Callahan, also a wonderful writer about film. His newest book is The Camera Lies, Acting for Hitchcock. Uh, and I have to thank some uh, people, starting with Cat Pastor, is the technical producer uh, of this show. She's in the studio. I am elsewhere. So is Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this episode and many others. Uh, uh, so thanks to all of them, and thanks to, to you for listening uh, to this show. We have one segment left to go. And so, you know, Dan, there are a lot of ways to kind of chop up the timeline of Hitchcock's movies, of his total oeuvre. Uh, but one way you can do it is, and this is all courtesy of Jonathan McPants, but you can say that in six years he made four completely indispensable uh, uh, movies, Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Psycho. So 1954 to 1960, he makes those four movies. But there are some people who might say that Psycho is kind of a little bit different, a little bit more of a departure, a little bit more of an actual horror movie, uh, as is The Birds, than everything that had gone before. So much of, of what has gone before are these kind of elegant, interesting people in beautiful locales, you know, uh, people who, who look like Cary Grant and, and Eva Marie Saint. This is a really different kind of movie in some ways. Or, Dan, would you argue, no, it's a logical extension of everything he's been doing? No, I think it is very different. And I think the milieu is different. And you know, these are people who don't have money. This is they lead a black and white wife, which is a life, which is why they're they're in a black and white movie, you know. And part of the problem, part of her problem at the beginning of the movie is she's in this dead end job. She doesn't have any money. You know, Norman is stuck in this hotel and no one's ever coming to it. And so, you know, it, it, and but there's so there's a quality of a nightmare there. And Hitchcock was very interested in getting the details right. He sent his uh, production people to Phoenix, Arizona, to take photos of you know, lobbies and hotel rooms because he wanted to get atmosphere into it. And I think if, if you remember Psycho, if you've looked at Psycho, there is a feeling of, you know, the, the Southwest, the, the glaring sun, you know, and, and it's very, it is very different from these color films with Cary Grant and Grace Kelly, you know, where there is a, an escapism element. There's no escaping in Psycho. Psycho is this very, very different kind of thing, very much so. Um, and it's, so I think he's, things have gotten darker, you know, things have darkened, though even in the 40s, they're, they're pretty dark. Notorious is pretty dark. Lifeboat is pretty dark. You know, it should be, I should mention, Hitchcock you know, was in charge of editing this footage of concentration camps at the end of World War II. And so he was looking at this incredibly uh, you know, just horrible footage, the, the worst footage possible. And what he said uh, is to his technicians, he said to them, I don't want you to do anything with the foot. I want it to be very simple because we don't want people to think we've edited it and made it into something, you know, Hitchcockian. 
you know, like cutting and montage and all that. He just wanted it to be very, very, sim- very simple so that people could just look at it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's something to, 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 uh, to keep in mind about Hitchcock is that he's very aware of the very worst of human beings and that that's partly where the real darkness in the work starts to come out. All right. I, I, even though I'm dying to have Tom do his take on the end of Psycho, I'm not going to do it because we're running out of time here. And we really have to just explore the question about whether Hitchcock himself is the very worst of human beings and the darkest uh, of human beings. Uh, and, um, you know, Tom uh, shares a life with somebody who would be really angry at us. So we should at least attempt to deal with this somehow. So, Tom, you know, we know more and more and and as is, is pointed out in, in Dan's book, more and more is claimed, too. It's kind of n- not necessarily clear what the exact truth is. But at some point, Hitchcock's just fairly benign and passive interest in beautiful women turns into something darker and more aggressive and more exploitive. And so what do we do with that now? I mean, you know, we live in an era of cancel culture, but how, how could you even cancel Hitchcock? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. You know, I, I'm I'm probably going to for for some of the the uh, more kind of biographical details and allegations. So I defer to Dan, who knows more about that. But of course, Tippi Hedren, the the star of the the Birds, um, has said uh, frequently that that Hitchcock uh, really harassed her and was really a, a terror to work with and potentially kind of really sexually um, uh, was uh, abusive, harassing. Whatever uh, the the best words to describe that. I I also want to return, you know, I, I was looking through, I don't know, different write-ups of Hitchcock for the show, and I came across the film critic uh, David Thompson uh, in his kind of biographical dictionary of film. Uh, is pretty dismissive of Hitchcock, and he calls him, quote, an impoverished inventor of thumbscrews who show us the human capacity for inflicting pain. And I, I think that at its worst, uh, I, I think that that is kind of what Hitchcock does, especially to women. I mean, we see this incredible diversity of, you know, of character, of intellect, of ambition in Hitchcock's women, uh, including Marion Crane, including Judy Barton. Um, and in some of, I think, the, the movies most weighed down by this uh, domineering male impulse to control women. You know, I, I watched uh, Vertigo with Lucy, and she really hated how much, you know, there's just this luxuriating in a man completely you know, destroying the the life of a woman, molding her to his his very touch. I, I think that there is something very you know critical in Hitchcock's movie of that attitude of men towards women, and yet it's undeniably a source of a kind of perverse pleasure uh, that Hitchcock gets. Uh, so whether that is related to his off-screen um, kind of alleg- alleged uh, assaults, I think that on screen we see plenty to feel really queasy about in the way that women, not just the way they look, the way they're treated. All right, Dan, we have a little bit less than three minutes left, and this is like a 40-minute conversation, but you can have all three minus of those minutes. Well, I mean, I think that what we have to understand is that Hitchcock as a human being and Hitchcock as an artist really are two different things because his art is better than he was as a human being. I think as a human being, he was a very unhappy man, and towards the end of his life, he behaved very badly, and he behaved very badly with Tippi Hedren. The thing is, in The Birds and in Marnie, she's, Tippi Hedren is very touching in Marnie, and the movie is very touching. And terrible things were going on between the two of them while they were shooting it, and that's one thing. The result on the screen is another thing. And Hitchcock would not be worth talking about if he wasn't a great artist, and he's a great artist because 
he identifies with all of the people in his movies, and that means that he identifies with the women. He often identifies with the women far more than he identifies with the men. The men in his movies are often quite unsympathetic, and the women are often extremely sympathetic. I think what he said to Francois Truffaut is that he said that he was uncomfortable sometimes shooting a scene like the shower scene, because on the one hand, he knew he was doing it as a kind of technical feat. But on the other hand, he said to him, but you know, so I often will think about what it would be like for the victim. I'm always thinking about what it would be like. Um, so, you know, it is, it is worth, you know, I think yeah, this, this thing of the, the, the person and the art that they make Hitchcock is a person, he was very unhappy. He wanted to be Cary Grant, and he wasn't. And Cary Grant himself wasn't Cary Grant. But that's part of what the, these very rich and troubling and complicated movies are all about. And that's partly why there have been so many books, there have been so many reactions to them. Because you know, if you're making a bad film, you're, you're going to say, this is the, what my movie is about. I am going to make this movie about this, that, or the other thing. Hitchcock never does that because a real artist, a great artist is someone who operates by instinct and, right. and they get at things, dreamlike things, things that are important to say about evil uh, and good and being complacent. They, I got to stop you right there. We were like literally out of time. <laughs> Dan Callahan, the book is The Camera Lies, Acting for Hitchcock. Tom Breen uh, is, of course, managing editor of the New Haven Independent and much more. Besides, I really hate this song, and I was cheered up to discover Doris Day, who I really love, hated this song, too. What will be, will be, case at all.